Welcome to the Vineyard Justice Network podcast. The Vineyard Justice Network exists to empower vineyard pastors and leaders to pursue and enact the justice of God's kingdom. BJN focuses on the interconnectivity of freeing slaves, ending poverty, and tending creation. Jared Boyd served as associate pastor at Central Vineyard Church in Columbus, Ohio for five years before stepping down to focus on planting the Order of Sustainable Faith, a missional monastic expression in the vineyard. Jared's interests are in the intersections between food, land use, and the practical and theological issues of food, ecology, and agriculture. In this workshop from the 2015 Vineyard Justice Network Conference at Anaheim, California, Jared leads a conversation about how the monastic tradition and particularly the new monastic expression in the vineyard movement, the Order of Sustainable Faith, can help us as people and churches to move into marginal spaces. Here is Jared Boyd and Making Room for Monasticism, Doing Justice from the Margins. Well, um, welcome to workshop. Uh, I'm always curious about who wants to come and hear about a vineyard monastery. Uh, but uh, my name is Jared Boyd. I'm a pastor in Columbus, Ohio, um, at a church called Central Vineyard. Uh, we were a church plant from Vineyard Columbus about 10 years ago, and uh, we're a neighborhood church, and um, I was on staff uh until about a year ago, and I resigned to launch a new expression in the vineyard, which, uh, if you've read the title, you're here. Um, we're starting a vineyard monastery, and uh, I want to talk a little bit more about that towards the end, um, and I may say a little bit about the what, but I really want to kind of dive into something that really gives hint uh, to the why, and I'm really actually excited about a small gathering. Um, that, you know, I've obviously over the past couple of days kind of tweaked some things, uh, to make it a little bit more conversational rather than just, you know, giving a talk or a presentation. Um, I came across a, a quote uh, earlier this week, actually, that I think is kind of a bit prophetic for our time here. Um, and it's by a Quaker historian and theologian, uh, Rufus Jones, who says, I pin my hopes to quiet processes and small circles in which vital and transforming events take place. And so um, I just think the smallness of kind of what we are doing here this week uh, is actually quite extraordinary and uh, that there's a faithfulness to which we're called to just be present to what is actually happening. So um, so we're starting a vineyard monastery um, and uh, we have a piece of property in East Ohio that we're kind of closing in on the final negotiations of. It's 360 acres. And over the next 18 months, we'll be 
doing a, a capital campaign to build a 21st century monastery where we'll invite people uh, for a one to five year period to come and live as a transitional space. And uh, we can talk more about the what. I brought um, for you guys our, a copy of our rule of life. Uh, every monastic expression has a rule of life, and I can give that to you at the end. And so this is all pretty brand new and pretty fresh. Um, but I want to talk and dialogue a little bit about some of the why about what we're doing. And um, I don't know if, if you guys were here when James Chung uh, gave his talk early on at the, at the outset of the conference. Uh, he said something um, that he kind of said it in a throwaway kind of way, but it's actually quite significant. He said this. He said, the church often does better with power when it doesn't have any than when it does. The church often does better with power than when it doesn't have any than when it does have power. And while James was speaking to a very specific context at the university, I think it was UCSD, um, there's both like a historical and a theological tradition that takes this concept very seriously. That the way of the church ought to be in the relinquishment of power. Um, And so when we talk about justice, which we're talking about this week, and when we talk about mercy, um, one of the things that I think has been most helpful to me is something that Rich Nathan said last year. And he kind of distinguished between justice and mercy. And he said that justice is when we're working to eradicate the systemic problems. And mercy is when we're just dealing with the effects of the problems right now in the moment. Um, And that really helped my thinking a little bit in the different ways in which we're trying to work towards the same goal of bringing the kingdom uh, on earth as it is in heaven. But whenever we're dealing with issues of justice, we're always dealing with people who have power who don't want to give it up. And when we're dealing with issues of mercy, we're engaging with people who do not have power nor do they have any means to gain power. And so power, in a lot of ways, is actually at the center of a lot of the work that we're doing, Um, whether it be in issues of human trafficking or um, anti-slavery stuff, issues of creation care, which I I kind of like to term a little bit more um, like working towards new creation. These are all issues of, of power, that we're kind of engaging in. And so this morning I want to talk a little bit about power and why we thirst for it and what the model Jesus gave us for engaging power structures uh, might be. So um, so there's a strong theological tradition um, that says that because the way that Jesus engaged with power was not by overpowering, but by giving up power, that the church should follow this way. And that's kind of the question that I want to engage with this morning, is what would it look like for the church to be a place of relinquishing of power in order to, over the long haul, um, demonstrate that the powers of this world actually do not have power. And so the way, the way that theologians have talked about this and the way that... Um, like a, a prime example is that you take the Roman Empire, for example. 
the Roman Empire was more or less focused and highly valued their legal structure. And so Jesus allowed himself to be, to come under the legal structure of the Roman Empire that was really focused on, on issues of like, our law is the most important thing. But what he did was he allowed their law to send an innocent man to death and demonstrated through that process that their law and their focus on the law is actually quite bankrupt. So this is like one of the theological themes. And if we look at Philippians chapter 2, we see that, that in many ways God's entire strategy for bringing the kingdom is in the relinquishment of power. Um, when we look at Philippians 2, you guys know the, the passage, um, is that who being in the very nature of God did not regard equality with God something to, to hang on to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that we have this example in Jesus of the relinquishment of power. Um, and so, one of the main things I just want to say, hi Andy, come on in man, is that Jesus intentionally gave up power to demonstrate that the powers of the world in the long run come undone when we refuse to collaborate with them. Yeah. When we refuse to collaborate with the powers. And so let me just kind of pose this out there to you guys. Let's brainstorm together. What are some ways that we are collaborating with powers? Even in the very areas that we're working um, towards justice in. This is meant to be a little confrontational of our, of our life. And so, what are the ways that we are culturally collaborating with powers? Are you referring to political powers? Political powers? I mean, to use a strictly technical term, we collaborate with our Department of Human Resources and uh, working with foster care. Yeah. So we That's work great. with the governmental structures and. That's great. And yeah. So we collaborate. That's good. That's great. So that's an that's a positive example of of how collaboration with powers um, is actually benefiting. Um, so what about the ways? So when I say collaborate, let me let me rephrase it. Say so how do we maybe unintentional? That's a very intentional collaboration with the goodness of where powers are leading. What are some unintentional collaborations that we may have? Our entire financial system. Okay, our financial system. We are engaged in uh, an an economy, and we we should be, but there are ways in which we collaborate um, with the power. So let me give you an example that was confrontational to me a couple years ago. I don't have much in a retirement account. Um, I'm 36. I'm a pastor. <laughs> but the uh, I was looking through kind of where the little bit of money I had invested was going. And I, I had this kind of moment. And I realized that part of my investment portfolio was, was invested in uh, a multinational company that I'm actively trying to undermine. <laughs> Okay, 
And so there are ways in which we are engaged in collaborating with the powers. Um, uh, I, I've been married almost 13 years. So 14 years ago, I bought a diamond. And, and do you guys know about the diamond trade industry? Um, we know that the diamond industry is one of the top industries where injustice and slavery reigns. And yet, we continue to buy diamonds. We collaborate with the powers that we are trying to undermine when we eat Hershey's chocolate. When we um, are doing things that we are doing because we're culturally just, we're in a system. And how to get our mind around trying to not collaborate with the powers unintentionally like that is is a very difficult, difficult thing. And so in the past five or ten years, you know, the whistle has been blown on the chocolate industry. And yet all the major chocolate corporations continue year after year to meet our demand for cheap chocolate. You know, and listen, I know I'm preaching to the choir. I'm, I'm sure, you know, many of us are looking for the fair trade label and, you know. But institutionally, as a church... The church in America, for example, has the greatest um, potential for impact in detangling from some of the powers, like Hershey's chocolate. And yet we haven't we haven't done anything in terms of like collectively, institutionally, you know. So are there other ways that um, I just want to get our our thinking oriented to? some similar things. What are some other ways in which we are unknowingly collaborating in the power structure for some of the things that we're trying to actually fight against? Well, one I think about all the time is uh, military involvement because, I mean, I just had a conversation with one of our worship leaders who mm. just gotten off a nuclear sub while they installed acoustics. Wow. He's a PhD acoustician. Mm. So and he's stressed out and is, so the prayer request is like, Help me. My job is stressful. There was an admiral, and I'm trying to figure this out. And there's heat. And so my daily pastoral situations are often helping mm. people navigate things like, in this case, installing a nuclear weapon system. Wow. Which is pretty heavy. Yeah. Uh, and we have a home nuclear same thing because we're in you know a navy town. Where are you? So, uh, San Diego. So, how much, you know, how do I navigate, you know, following Jesus, prayer request? I want to support and comfort, and mm-hmm. this is your job, this is your prayer request, but then I also want to hit, did you can't say that was an acoustic system on a nuclear sub. And was there, mm-hmm. you know, is there another conversation to be had about followers of Jesus and, and how we engage? things in the nuclear weapon systems. Yeah. Which is sort of a, you know, the extreme example maybe of military involvement. But anyway, so that's that's just always, and I don't have a good answer. I guess it's the answer is I'm in the system and just yeah. trying to love my worship leader over lunch is probably a lot of times the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as, as a veteran, yeah. you know, I'll... 
how the biblically and I mean, not justifying military, but Jesus never told a Roman soldier stop being a soldier. He said just do it correctly. Yeah. And so there's this tension because the gospel was spread by the Roman army mm-hmm. by many places in the early centuries. Yeah. Um, and so there's this tension of uh, there's multiple points of view. Yeah. In, in, in military service. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. One of the things in missions that we were taught uh, early on is we had someone from uh, the Foursquare come in, and when America went into Afghanistan, they found all of these Christians in mm. Afghanistan who were converted to Christ by the privates who were in the Russian Soviet Army who had been Pentecostal kids right. that had been drafted into the Soviet Army and they had shared their faith. Yeah. And so there was this whole movement. You know, you know that will blow your mind too about yeah. the Soviet Army actually evangelized a portion of Afghanistan. Of the people that they were sent to, to what were the Soviets in Afghanistan for? Oh, well, originally they were in there to, like Vietnam. I mean, they went in there to conquer. That's right. So you're, this is actually a great example. These individual sur- soldiers, um, maybe without articulating in the way that I'm trying to articulate, but they were refusing to collaborate with the stated mission for being on the ground in Afghanistan. And they were, they were basically, with the power of the gospel, right, uh, undoing the power of, of, of the military, you know. I mean, so there are, there are multiple perspectives. And I, this is, I'm not anti-military. I don't think Jesus was anti-military. He certainly, I, I completely agree with what you're saying, Bubba. But when he exhorted them to be a certain kind of soldier, he was actually exhorting them to come under the rule and the reign of Jesus rather than the rule and reign of Caesar. And so he was exhorting them towards, we're not going to collaborate. You know, and I'm using the, the word collaborate in a very broad sense, not like in the very specific sense that you're talking about when you collaborate with um, a government organization to work against anti-trafficking. That's not what I'm talking about. I think that's really wise collaboration. I'm talking about more like just unknown collaboration, you know. Um, So, and it strikes me that this is not just, we don't just get this in Philippians 2. If we look back through Scripture, the way that God has unfolded the plan for the kingdom has always included... Um, in my opinion, and this is a little controversial even in the whole history of theology. And um, I mean, if you are theologically bent, I'm coming at this from a bit of an Anabaptist tradition. Um, and so, but if you look back in Isaiah chapter, you know, Isaiah 52, it says, The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations, and all of the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And so when the Lord shows up, like so we get this picture in Isaiah 53. It says, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is where we get the, the passage. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. It's always been God's plan to overturn the powers of this world through the humility and the relinquishing of power is what I want to say. And so, um, it goes on, you guys know the passage, is beautiful, I just want to keep reading, but he, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God. Um, and we find this in Jesus, when, when Peter, you know, he said, Peter put away the sword. When Peter was calling for, Jesus, take your rightful claim, as Messiah and King, and let's take the city. What was Jesus' response to him? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> you know? Jesus, we see over and over and over again, was encouraging the relinquishment of power. He rode into the city on a borrowed colt. I mean, these are all themes that we could pull out, and we could spend a lot of time um, talking about the slowness of the of the kingdom revolution. Everybody wanted it to happen quick and everybody wanted it to happen with power. So they were waiting for the lion of Judah and what they got was a slain lamb. And so how do we as a church the question is embody uh, the humility and the relinquishing of power and the working from the margins that Jesus embodied is the question. Um, so, I want to leave ample time for dialogue. And so, I, I don't want to go too far, but I, I want to say that historically, one of the ways in which the, the church has institutionally removed itself from the collaboration of power is in the institution of the monastic, the monastic life, the monastery. And so, uh, if you look historically, the very first kind of monastic move was a move to the desert, and it was in response to a desire to no longer collaborate with the powers of Rome. On the, on the, on the heels of what has what been referred by some authors as the Constantinian error. The Constantinian error is when, is when the church basically got in bed with the power of Rome, with the Emperor Constantine. And a lot of scholars and thinkers think that, that we have actually been operating in the error of Constantine, Constantinian error, ever since then. And that this, the move of the Spirit and the move of what God has done throughout history in the ways in which it has righted wrongs has mostly been through marginal and unpowered efforts on the side. And so if you look at, and again, this is uh, my focus is on, on monasticism. And so there's, there's other things that we could focus on. But if you look at the history of the Jesuit order, um, this is why we have an education system. Yeah. Okay? 
if you look at the history of the Cistercians and the Benedictines, this is why we have hospitals. Uh, they, they created hospitals. Uh, it began as hospitality for the sick. And it was institutionalized under um, the Cistercian and Benedictine kind of move over centuries of time. <clears throat> um, if you look at, you know, I mentioned in Lance's coaching track, we just had a conversation, I mentioned the quiet efforts of Mother Teresa. You know, she didn't, she didn't mean to start a revolution of kindness, but she did by going on the margins and taking care of lepers. And so... Um, but she was all over Facebook, too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, she was like, yeah. you know, hashtag Mother Teresa, right? Mama T. Uh, Mama T, right? <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I, I recognize that, um, you know, I, I unfortunately wasn't in Alexa's presentation. I'm not, I'm not advocating for an either-or. I really do believe we have a, a both-and responsibility. Um, but what I, what I do wonder is I wonder um, what would it look like to take the really long view and to actually really try to take a, um, a path of humility and a path of relinquishment of power for the long haul um, as a way of being in the world as the church in addition to the other kinds of efforts that we've already been trying for hundreds and thousands of years, you know. And so our effort to, to launch a monastery and a missional monastic expression within the vineyard, um, obviously there's, there's lots of reasons behind why we feel like God has led us to do this. But one of the reasons is that it's just true that historically when people gather together and come under a certain way of life that includes things like humility and simplicity and poverty and hospitality, when people gather together and say, we collectively are going to go low, we're going to go low with, with humility to lead us, it's just true that God has shown up and done things. And um, I would say that this is a result of following in the strategy and the method of Jesus heading to the cross. So, so we're starting a vineyard monastery, and we're also starting um, a religious order. And it's what we're doing has both a residential component where we will invite people to live uh, for one to five years at this place that we are, are working to building. But we're also inviting people into living a certain set of commitments. Um, there's 11 commitments in here, and this is just called invitations and commitments. It's an invitation to live under a certain rule of life, which is this, in conversation with a spiritual director. Um, and the, the commitments, there's nothing new here. Um, it, this We've just tried to glean the best from the mendicant orders like the Dominicans and the Franciscans and the Jesuits and the cloistered orders like the Benedictines, Cistercians, the Augustinian nuns, to bring the best of both of those to, as, as I've heard John used to say, to, to eat the meat, spit out the bones, and to breathe vineyard ethos, and we hope 
the spirit of what God is doing in the vineyard into this kind of institutional monasticism <coughs> and to try and to try this way. And so um, so that's a little bit of the what. But uh, I want to just open it up for, for conversation about about I guess why why do you think why do we think it's hard to relinquish power in the way that Jesus relinquished power? Why is that difficult for us? What are some hurdles? Um, benefit from it. Okay. Say more. All over the place you benefit from it. Like, like in my own city, in Winnipeg, mm-hmm. we benefit from the hydro that is coming from damaged areas and traditional lands are flooded and people are, they can't, you know, they can't live there anymore. Hmm. The water that we get from our taps is, in my city, not every, like, it's a particular thing, but it comes from a First Nation, or like Native American right. property that they just, people a hundred years ago went and said, we're taking this water. And That's right. So now the water that we get, <laughs> they die if they drink it. <laughs> That's right. Like it's that polluted. Wow. Um, so like, it for, for, for me and people in my city, like we benefit tremendously from from having the power that we exercised right. in very un-Jesus-like ways. Yeah. Benefit from the injustice. Yeah. yeah. We, I mean, think of the clothes that we, most of us buy in America. I mean, it just is true that most of the clothing on the shelves are the product of um, either uh, child labor where kids are not able to go to school because they're working 14 hours a day. Um, I read a, one study that there was kind of an uncovering of, um, of a blue jean company. Uh, I think it was actually Indonesia. Some women who were working 14 hours a day sewing blue jeans. If they didn't meet their quota, um, the manager took the jeans and beat the women with the blue jeans. And so if you just think about that, then, then there are people walking around all around us that are actually wearing on, on our bodies like the very garments that were used to beat somebody. And so it's like this is where we could get overwhelmed because where, then how do I buy clothes? I mean, I face this all the time. But how do I buy clothes for my kids when I don't know what the conditions under which those clothing, you know, Manufacturer, but I'm 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 interested in starting the conversation to say, well, we need to think systemically about how we can. Um, so one of the commitments that we have in our rule of life is, um, you know, we don't mandate a certain level of clothing. We don't mandate like we're not talking about monks and nuns dressed in habits here, but we do want to be conscious about how our clothing participates in and collaborates in systems of injustice. And so, um, for some people, that may be shopping at the thrift store, because you know you're not you're not continuing to uh, participate in the the new clothing industry. For others, it may be purchasing you know fair trade garments, um, garments where you know are made from people. Um, so you may notice I'm wearing the same thing today as I wore yesterday and the day before. But for me personally, the call that God has put on my life. And it's been a very individual. We don't prescribe this for anybody. But for me, um, I, I only have about two or three sets of clothes. 
but that's the way most of the world lives. And it allows me to not collaborate um, with the, the powers that oppress. My wife doesn't like that. She, does, she wants more than So she shops at the thrift store. And that's fine. Because she's still not collaborating, you know. And so um, this is the kind of thing that I want us to begin, that, that we're trying to begin not just raising an awareness, but when you invite people to make commitments and you say to them that the way of humility and the relinquishment of all the benefit that you receive from injustice, that then you are inviting the spirit of what Jesus did and the relinquishment of his power. You know, If you read scripture through these eyes, man, you'll see it all over the place. So, what else? What else sure. strikes you? Yeah. Um, you can even kind of begin the discussion today with an anti-classical approach. So, at least I'm hearing language of opposition, uh, separation, hmm. Maybe I came into it with my insight with that. It's kind of what makes a monastery. Yeah. But uh, I think there's a missing element of transformation. Mm. When I gave my life to Christ, I didn't give my life to separate. Right. I kind of feel like I have gave my life to Christ to follow Him. Mm-hmm. And for 15 years, that's led me down a journey, you know, within the power structures. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a little bit taken back mm-hmm. by the language you're using mm-hmm. in terms of the essence of my faith is you know to follow. So stillness is you know basically the instrument to follow Christ. Mm-hmm. But using cultural references, um, specific. You know, placing us in a position of a power structure, which is and obviously we're within, we're within the mixture of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Mm-hmm. So the kingdom we live in is all-encompassing in terms of power, right? The, but the, the real thing is, where is Jesus going and what's he asking of me? That's right. And I, I see a trend that that's... Uh, to go to places for transformative reasons. That's right. And um, I don't see that as an opposition to the argument that um, somehow we have to separate. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I guess there's, uh, I'm, I don't know if anyone else kind of, kind of feels the way I feel right now, but I kind of feel like uh, the language um, is more in a separation that you're promoting Mm. in your argument this morning. I, and I, know, I don't believe that's what you're saying in your heart. Or maybe it is. But, um, uh, yeah, for me, the kingdom is transforming. Sure. Um, you know, when in, and I, you know, a couple of years ago, I just, you know, Luke 2 says that John came to grow the love of parents towards their kids. Yeah. And I was so shocked by that. But then I read an article, like, in, Hippolytus' argument was that the lowest of the low were people that taught kids. Mm. This is when Jesus, and that, and that totally makes sense, all the language that's used in Scripture towards kids. Yeah. So the slowness of the kingdom come and the transformational power of the kingdom you know, over these 2,000 years. Um, 
there's something to that for me that's transformational um, as opposed to oppositional. Yeah. This is what I'm saying. I'd love to hear more about what about what I've said feels like we're moving towards separation. You know, because that's that's kind of the critique of the Anabaptist tradition. And it's actually a good critique. You know, the people who have most embodied the Anabaptist tradition are the Amish. And we're not talking about being Amish here. We're not talking about removing ourselves entirely from culture and doing our own little thing. We're talking about being a part of the culture, yet opposing it through the way of humility and a refusal to collaborate with the things that contribute to injustice. And so it's not about, like, we're not talking about, have you, have you guys seen the movie um, uh, The Village um, by M. Night Shyamalan? Yep. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about, oh, yeah, <laughs> and, which is actually why we actually limit the residential expression to five years. Nobody can stay longer than five years because it's missional. So the residential expression is designed, we want to be able to say to people, um, and, and it's not for everybody, but we just believe that some people need um, to relinquish the things they own, to relinquish um, the kind of climbing of the, the current power structure that they're a part of. And we just want to say, look, give it all away, Put some stuff in storage, sell your car, and come farm with us for two years. And we just trust that in the process of that relinquishment, that God is going to give you your assignment for where he wants you to go missionally. Um, So the residential expression is not a pulling away, it's a preparation. It's a preparation of soul and of of body. And it's also a long-term strategy. The reason we're starting a farm... So I'm here, uh, you know, we haven't done a lot of talk about the creation care stuff, but um, our food system is radically broken. It's just radically, radically broken. Um, When you have companies like Monsanto going down to South America to give away free seeds in the wake of destruction. So this happens happens several times. You've got to research this. Big seed companies who have patents on their seeds, like Monsanto, We'll go down in South American countries after a hurricane or something like that, and they'll say, oh, you can have our free seeds. But the thing is that those farmers have been saving seeds for thousands of years. And so even though they don't have seeds to plant the next crop with, they have refused to collaborate with Monsanto because once you start planting Monsanto's seeds, the seeds that you gain from, the ne- from that harvest cannot be replanted. And so what's happening is Monsanto is trying to exert its power over poor people. And you know what the poor people are doing? They're saying, no. We won't even receive these for free. Pallets. They, they, they're, they're, they're on the face of starvation, and they're piling up bags of seeds and burning them. You know? So this is an example of, like, we're not going to collaborate with the system of power. But so for, for us, the long-term strategy, and this is kind of where I want to land in the point, is that, I think the reason that I want to advocate for a way of humility and a way of 
stepping out of the collaboration with powers is because personally I think that most of what happens happens most of what happens that eradicates systemic injustice happens over long, long, long arcs. And our focus often, particularly as Americans, is very short-term focused. And so we think we think we have a long-term vision when we say 20 years. So we're going to sign a 350-year lease on this piece of land because the vision for trying to contribute to um, healing our food system and our relationship with the land and our relationship with God's creation is not going to happen in my generation or my grandkids. It's going to happen over 250 or 300 years. And so the way of humility, if we embraced it, would allow us to think past our own life and our own legacy and invest in a three or four hundred year plan for the for the coming of the kingdom. Maybe another way Jared of getting at what I think Rob was asking. You know neighbors sort of five postures, Christ mm-hmm. culture, Christ yeah. and culture, Christ against culture above, and paradox with tension and transformation. Yeah. If you were going to plot sort of a monastic expression of the vineyard, yeah. where might you find it? And to be fair, Niebuhr says there's a time and place for all five. That's right. Depending on the context. That's right. Any of the five might be more appropriate to the context. And I do think that probably most of us signed on whether or not we'd ever heard Niebuhr uh-huh. for the transformation stuff. That's right. Are you, do you see yourself as maybe moving into a different context intentionally, or would you see yourself as a type of transformation, a type of paradox? It's a great question. You know, or yeah. or maybe more in that oppositional against we're actually signing up for that because we think this time and place and these systems really require at least an expression that is against. Yeah. Or maybe I might hear more paradox language, and I just read a Stackhouse book where he makes an argument in our time and place, the ethical thing to do is to move from transformation to paradox because transformation requires too much engagement with powers. That's right. But then when I read it, I was like, well, I I signed up for number five. You know, I'm I'm the last chapter on transformation. Absolutely. Don taught me. That's the kingdom choice. That's right. So, yeah, what would you, do you have a thought on Yeah. So I think, um, I think it's a great question. I mean, I think that is the question. And I think that um, I think that the answer is yes. What we're trying to do, and what I have a vision for, is transformational. But I wonder, with along with history, um, and along with what I see in Scripture, I wonder if if at least part of the transformation project includes some level of an unwillingness to collaborate with the current mode. And so Jesus did this all the time. You know, like, even with the Pharisees, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You know, like, you have this system where you think you have figured out what is happening. Um, Jesus, part of his mode was to kind of say, look, I'm not, like, I'm here to say that I'm not collaborating with your structure here. I'm actually going to get at the root thing that we're trying to do. And so I would say that in a lot of ways, and listen, I don't, I recognize that the thing that we're trying to do is, um, 
you know, a lot of people say monastery. It's like, it's not the Middle Ages. And there's a lot of baggage that, that we bring to the table that, we are, that we're trying to be contentious with re- regarding the monastic expression. Um, because a lot, of, a lot of people do see it as like this separation, this kind of, you know. So we're trying to do the both and thing. We're trying to say we want to intentionally step away from uh, that, the, the constant collaboration and the unthinking ways that we're accustomed to and try to have an imagination for a different way, not to get away from culture, but a different way of impacting culture, participating with culture. So we're going to grow food, lots and lots of food, and we're going to bring it into the farmer's market. Okay? And, and so we are participating in our city, we're gonna. We have a long-term plan of opening up like a butcher shop and a grocery store. I mean, this is like the 30-year plan <coughs> to be engaged in culture in a new way and out of an expression of of the church. So, so for me, on a very practical level, yeah, like we, my wife and I are part. Like we, we run a, a marriage small group, so we have probably six to eight younger couples. You know, you're talking anywhere from. 30 to 45 years in age that they show up on Thursday night and it's like a, you know, like an emergency room, right? I mean, mm. Their life, and it's not like major crisis, it's like they're going a hundred directions. Mm. They haven't even talked to each other in three days because yeah. they have three kids a bit. And, um, you know, when, when like, we start asking very basic questions about, like, how do you simplify your life, or you know, what are some? It's just—it's almost impossible for them to begin to grasp. Yeah. Like, is this doable? Yeah. Um, like, well, you know, there's because they're, I mean, they're a product of the powers that be, right? The culture that says you have to have this, this, and it makes your kids go here. You have to have, mm. you know, you, both. You should be working. And I'm not an advocate for like, you know, mom. But the bottom line is that, like, people need a reset um, right. and I and the, I, I don't know enough to understand some of this but the only way that they in my opinion that a reset can happen um, and I'm not you know I'm, I don't want to belittle transformation because I, I believe that's what it is almost something radical that would say hey listen I'm gonna move my family to Ohio for one to five years and we're going to just not live, you know, be off the grid. Mm-hmm. To to have a complete reset. Yeah. It's the only way that we can do that without, you know, I, I don't know. Does that make sense? And I don't know if I you're doing so. it for families. I, I mean, I kind of hope it's it's available to that because I think it yeah. uh, it's going to be, I mean, the, that's going to be really important. Yeah. But what it does is it, it's just you just push the reset button, right? And said, hey, listen, no, I'm not going to sell my soul to all these different things that my culture has told me to. Yeah. And maybe that's too easy. Like, maybe that's the easy way out. I don't know. But for me, I'm like, it might be a great option. Yeah. I I love that you bring up a very practical question in terms of just what I hear you describing is, um, I don't know if anybody has read uh, James K.A. Smith's books, Desiring the Kingdom, Imagining the Kingdom. These are these are pretty informative to kind of some of the things that we are thinking in the direction is that no environment is a neutral environment. We're always being formed towards something. So what I hear you describing is the output 
of the way in which our culture forms people. And so what, what this is and what the residential expression is, what the conversations about silence and solitude and spiritual direction, simplicity, we have a, a commitment to simplicity and when possible poverty. I mean, uh, historically people have taken vows of poverty um, not because they think that poverty is better than riches, but because does something does open up when you when you give up the power of manna, you know? Simplicity. Simplicity, you know? So this conversation is a conversation that is meant to, in many ways, do what Jamie Smith describes in his book, Desiring the Kingdom. It's meant to provide some context to form people towards uh, the, the end, the telos for... For the kingdom, Lance, I love what you said in there, like uh, in in your office an hour ago. We begin to think about what kind of people are we trying to form, produce, and then how do we get there? And I'm not saying this is this this is not like a discipleship mode for every church. It's not for every person. Historically, it has been, however, for some people to be a witness towards. Um, just kind of a different invitation from the Lord. And again, I do think it's a both and. I don't think that the the church needs to all move to the farm. It's not, you know. But I do think that if we were to take seriously, for example, creation care, and if we actually believe, I, I believe that the earth that we are on right now is the place where we will spend all eternity. If that's true, then it's going to go through a transformation. And if the Apostle Paul is right... In Ephesians, he says that that all happens through the church. Well, then we need to begin to institutionally engage in things like um, tending animals and uh, tending to creation. Um, not as a side project, but as kind of, this is the gospel. It's the good news for, for new creation. Okay, Jared, so, you know, I'm sh- most people are not going to move to a monastery. Yeah. You know, we have several hundreds of people around here that are not going to move. I mean, yeah. maybe a couple would. But kind of bring it down to that level, to you know, our friend here's level. Yeah. Like, what are you guys envisioning in terms of not what happens at the farm, yeah. but what happens to the most of the rest of us? Sure. Uh, I mean... Yeah, envision that a little bit. Yeah, that's great. It's a good question. So there's a non-residential expression. So like we could work through these in small groups or yeah. people were discipling, blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. So there's there's an invitation here. Uh, so the, at, the, at the center of all of this is spiritual direction. So the idea is that you would dialogue with a spiritual director on, a lev- on these commitments. Right. And from wherever you are in the world... You, this dialogue with the spiritual director would be trying to discern what is God's invitation to me for simplicity. We've not been prescriptive about what simplicity looks like because simplicity for me may look incredibly different than simplicity to Andy. And we just trust that the Holy Spirit is going to draw people into new ways, into silence and solitude, um, tending to the things that God is speaking to the heart. Um, and so... Spiritual direction is at the center, so we are matching people with a spiritual director, and we are inviting them to consider uh, membership in the order of sustainable faith. And uh, the first step is a six-month discernment process with a spiritual director. 
And then there's an 18-month secondary discernment process called the novitiate experience. Um, and so it's a two-year process, but at the end of two years, we believe that some people will say, man, I want to sign up for this way of life. Like, this is how I want to live. Um, close to the, kind of close to the ground, just a deeper humility. Um, and here's the interesting thing. There are secular institutions in our culture that invite people into the way of humility. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard of, like, um, City Year or... City year? Uh, year, city year, or Teach for America. Um, people who are engaged in these like educational organizations in inner cities, um, they live at the poverty level, you know, because these organizations recognize that in order to really engage in, in a transformational process with inner city kids, you've got to be in their world. You can't come driving in from the suburb in a brand-new Honda Civic even. I mean, so they have their, their teachers live at the poverty level um, in order to teach impoverished children, you know. So, so, to, so to flesh that out a little bit is that we have a non-residential expression that people don't have to move. We recognize not many people are going to move to where we're doing. Special Yeah. <laughs> we, we think a place is important for a variety of reasons, but we, we expect that the broader... Impact will be inviting people into a way of life and a set of commitments, meeting with the spiritual director, um, kind of leaning into this direction. So, kind of, I'll just be share from my own perspective. Yeah. Um, kind of the way God deals with me all the time is He'll lead me into my next assignment, or out of curiosity, it'll lead me into the next. I'm trying to, I guess I'm wrestling with the rule of order and how God actually works, at least in my life, and mm. maybe many of the people I talk to, may not exactly fit with that and the particular assignments that we have at this point in our journey may or may not exactly fit with that, or maybe some of them do, but some of them don't. So That's right. I guess I'm, I'm just trying to kind of envision this in my own mind, like what would this all look like? Um, you know, the Lord is, uh, you know, my wife, so, you know, she was drawn into the whole human trafficking area, not even really by choice, just kind of like got hooked and got pulled into it. And, um, and that's kind of the way God's worked in our life over the last, you know, 40 years that we've been around each other. Mm. You know, he's kind of like drawn us here and then we will we'll get involved here, we've learned about this, and mm -hmm. integrated some of that, but it's ne it's always kind of, I don't this is maybe not the right word, but kind of been piecemeal, mm -hmm. you know, and like, I, I'm sure God sees the bigger picture of what he's doing with this, but I don't always see it, mm -hmm. I just find like I'm curious about something, and I'll yeah. start like looking into it, reading some stuff about it, and and then, you know, often God will launch us into, into doing something in, in, in that area. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of not the people that are living on the property, but the people that are around and, and what God's doing with them in the world, mm -hmm. and how that all works. And I haven't read your, you know, I haven't read the thing yet, so it may yeah. all work easily, and I might be able to see it. But do you understand what I'm saying? I, I think so. I think yeah. this is a hard, this is a hard thing to get our mind around. You know, uh, a non-Catholic religious order 
monks and nuns? Like, no, we're not, you know, we're not talking about becoming monks and nuns, but a, a rule of life um, is meant to, to kind of hem us in a bit, yeah. you know. And uh, the, the hemming in throughout history where people have said, I'm going to submit to to this rule of life um, has just produced a great level of transformation, both in people and in the world. And so um, it's a focus. It's not going to be... It's not going to be for everybody, but we don't, we don't anticipate, like we're not trying to do something. I think one of the early critiques, you know, we've been working on this dialoguing for four years. And so, um, uh, which is not to say we've got it right, but one of the early critiques was, I wonder if people will feel like, oh, the monastic thing is for special Christians. Elite, the elite. The elite. Um, I think as you read this, there's not a sense of that at all. There's an open invitation for people to begin right where they are um, and to begin asking. So if you, if you thumb through here, there's always a question. So there's kind of questions uh, related to each commitment. So, for example, there's um, in the commitment to simplicity, uh, we talk about possessions. And um, there are questions like, how are... Like one question for reflection is, how are the things that we have or want getting in the way of following Jesus? That's a question for everybody. Yeah. You know, um, is there currently any possession I am longing for? Does anybody long for some iPhone six? You know, I don't know, <laughs> iWatch, right? These are things that we need to confront. That we need to be confronted with, so that we're not just taken along by our desires that often aren't completely honed in yet, you know. So I think it's pretty invitational. It's meant to yeah, be I mean, dialogue. To yeah. it. I'm just, you know, reacting out of what you're saying right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, you know, I, maybe this is right. It's not what to think, but how to think is maybe a good way to explain what this is. Yeah. To some extent, because there is a lot of contextualization that kind of has to happen yeah. in this sure. setting, which is what yep. you're going for. And I think that if maybe, like, you just didn't talk at all about the, the monastery. Yeah. People are like, yeah, this is, this is a good framework. It's almost like, hey, this is a discipleship book to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so there's a lot of baggage with that. Um, but what I will say is, based off of what James is talking about, like, I don't think that, um, I, I think we're going to see more and more of this monastic uh, lifestyle, hmm. which is... You know, people saying, hey, listen, I, I don't want to just live the norms because that's what is easy. Um, mm-hmm. That's what makes me the most money, or uh, I think. So it's going to happen one way or the other. It'd be great if we got on the front end of it and steered it. Amen, dude. You're, that's, a, that's a good word right there. I love it. This is an invitation. That's all it is. And for some people, like, I don't know, you get invited to lunch or you get invited to a party. You're like, ah, I'd rather stay home and read. That's fine. That's what this is. This is an invitation. And we just think some people will want it and will we'll feel an invitation from God in it. And other people won't. And that's, that's fine. There's, we expect that, you know. So that's, that's just the, that's the vision, you know. And, and this morning, we're, we're talking about a tiny slice one emphasis on on power, but that's not the that's not the front end of everything that we're thinking about. We're not just thinking about 
not collaborating with power. There's, there's like 50 more slices of the pie um, that go into this. And so. How do you think it could... I like just thinking historically about monastic movements, and there was, and they were never been for everybody. Yeah, like it's always been a very a small portion of the church, That's but right. their influence towards the rest of the church has been pretty profound. Absolutely, yeah. What do you think? What would you envision for that? Hmm. For this? And that's a great question. I mean, my hope is that uh, that this could. You know, in my conversations with like, you know, Michael Gatlin, and like we we do hope that this is uh, another way of people imagining, you know, planting intentional communities in cities. Um, so we're having one conversation in, in one area of the city um, where we want to try to grab one area of Columbus. We want to try to grab about twenty or thirty people um, to plant a a kind of missional outpost, a, a monastic expression in the city. And the idea is to get like a 2,000 square foot space to, to build a table that seats 60 people and to begin having breakfast served twice, twice a week um, for, for people coming into the city and for people who are living. This is a low-income area. And that's the idea. We're going to serve breakfast twice a week, and there's a jar by the door. If you have money, drop it in. If you don't, just eat anyway. And at the end of breakfast, we're always here uh, to pray for you. You got something going on in your day? We're going to pray for you. So if people in that community knew that twice a week I can go have breakfast and get prayer, like, it's a great thing. And so, like, do that, do only that for a year. And then maybe year two, you add, like, a once a month dinner where you do the same thing. And so we're trying to also give people an imagination for it. Other, other ways to plant missional monastic communities and neighborhoods that aren't necessarily geared towards Sunday morning, um, but are geared towards just this, this hospitality and a ministry of presence in people's lives. And so that's one example of what I hope, you know, I hope will happen. So, and right now this is, I mean, this is real fresh. It's like six or eight weeks live. Um, but it's four or five years in the making, and um, it's going to change as time goes by. We know that. And, but that's the vision. Yeah. Um, these are the kind of the ide- ideologies behind what we're doing, the why. You know? it's, it's hard to evaluate something that's communal from an individualistic mindset. That's thing, right. Yeah. Which is what, what we're pretty good at doing. <laughs> yeah. That's a great point, man. That's like... That's an hour conversation, just in what you said. I just love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's good. This is kind of the conversation that's going on in the slow church yeah. movement. You know, that's right. all of these kind of issues. The what? Oh. There's a book called Slow Church, and, and there's kind of a movement that's kind of developing around mm-hmm. it. That's talking about new forms of church and mm-hmm. and discipleship going more slowly and mm-hmm. uh, more intentionally and. Uh, it's an interesting book. I mean, there's nothing in it you go, oh, I've never ever thought about that. But yeah. but it's stimulated a lot of thinking and a lot of uh, um, interaction uh, on the internet. Yeah, I know Chris Smith, uh, the author, and personally, I think that he's been a little overly critical of of, uh, of traditional church. Of, of traditional church, I, I think that um, the both and this is where I love Bridge yeah. and Insu's book. It's like right. I love. I mean, Rich Nathan's church is ten thousand people and. Um, 
It serves our city in amazing ways. Um, and we need that. Let's do it. And I just want to say we also need these little pockets of like 40 and 50 people in neighborhoods. And I think Rich would, he would say the same thing. He's like, absolutely. So, um, but yeah, the slow church mentality, like even as we think about church planning, um, I'm always advocating for us slowing down. Way down. I think particularly in the vineyard, and I know it's not very popular to say, um, but I, I think we move way too quickly, you know. And I've never planted a church, so you can take it for what it is. But I've been a part of a church plant for 10 years. And um, I think the thing that has served us well and the thing I think that Jeff Canal leads so well in is this idea of we are moving slow. We're just going to gonna be here for the next 60 years. We don't need to get there quickly, you know. And so I love it. He's, he's brilliant in this arena. If you don't know Jeff, he's a neighborhood pastor, and he is a great pastor. Just mark because he doesn't move slow personally. No, he doesn't. <laughs> I do think you're you're right. I mean, from somebody that's been involved in church planting for 35 years or whatever, half of our churches haven't succeeded, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of different reasons for that that we can talk about. But I think part of the reason is people are sent out in rushed fashion that weren't really prepared to do it Mm -hmm. and their their failing is pretty predictable yeah Um, and there's sometimes just circumstance and a lot of things happen church planning can be brutal yeah but uh, I I think that that church planter being thoroughly discipled is a big big difference Mm. Uh, if somebody just was a small group leader and they and they just, uh, you know, he feels like he has a call, and so they kind of get rid of him. Yeah. You know, I've seen a lot of get rid of Kick him out the door. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering, I don't know if your name Jeans. What's your name? Rob. Rob, yeah. do you feel like the discussion um, that ensued after your questions helped at all with you? Oh, yeah. Okay. I think. You know, as I was pulling in the driveway, I called my wife and I just asked her to pray with me. She's prophetically gifted, and she prayed for me in the word still. Hmm. And I remember saying to her, I'm like, oh, okay, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> really not good at that word, Lord, at all. And uh, I, so I have high hopes that, you know, whatever the, you know, however the, I'm really curious to read the call. Yeah. Okay, you haven't talked about that, like, you know, things that get started in the dinner from people hear from the Lord are just very intriguing to me. Mm. So uh, the ideas that the monastics over time have brought to the discussion of being still hear the Lord's voice, mm-hmm. it's, it's the instrument of ministry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we all kind of take a different approach in terms of how we, what God's calling us to do in transformation, mm-hmm. what that looks like. But I think all this is a great discussion. I just can't wait to see what the Lord does in and through this. Mm. I believe if he's starting, he's called you to this. Mm -hmm. It's a particular reason for the kingdom ministry, and Vineyard could be leading the way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to be really pressing you Mm -hmm. personally for the other 198 people that can't get there for a thousand reasons. You know, I was called in my 40s to ministry. Um, 
and I kind of feel like I've gone through that one year that you're going to bring people to over the past 15. Mm -hmm. And I could, I could argue as to how the Lord has brought me through that process. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a lot to be said what can be done in that non-residential area. Yeah. For spiritual lives in general. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and we think that's going to be the bulk of it. Yeah. You know. I mean, oh my. I just want to be a farmer. <laughs> I just want to grow. I just want to grow kale, and I want to milk goats. I want to make cheese, and I want to. And I want to send people out into the world to go do what God's called them to do. Yeah. You know, and that's that's what this is. It's just we just want to be uh, kind of ushering people in that direction. We'll be on the other one. Hey, this is great cheese, yeah. yeah. It's great. We're happy to eat what you make. Yeah, we're in. Um, hey, uh, can I just close in prayer? It's like noon. I should probably do that. Well, Lord, um, I am so grateful that you are so kind to us. And Lord, I just pray that, um, God, however you want to, to use the, the vision that you have gave, I just pray that you would do it. And I do pray, Lord, that a spirit of invitation would be on uh, the order of sustainable faith. And pray you would be inviting all of us into deep consideration for how our lives can be following in the way of humility that you have set before us. Empower us, Lord, to, to consume less, to be content with less. God, I pray that you would remove the bulky things from our lives and make space for more of what you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen.